to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Over his 33-year Army National Guard career, Command Sergeant Major Carl Holcomb rose to become the State Command Sergeant Major, the highest-ranking enlisted soldier in the Virginia National Guard. He is also the first black man to hold the position. He also spent 17 years as a correctional officer and, as you'll hear, had to de-escalate sometimes life-threatening situations for himself and for the inmates. In this conversation, Carl tells us stories from both of his careers, and we end with his thoughts on the current social climate. So here's Carl Holcomb. We're uh, joined by uh, an old Army buddy of mine back in the day. We, I mean, I think we met when you were a staff sergeant. Yes, I was pro- I was, probably a, a, was I a lieutenant or a captain? You was a captain. I was a I captain. Yeah. And I, I probably had learned a couple things, but I still had a lot to learn back when we <laughs> met. Anyway, Command Sergeant Major Carl Holcomb is with us. I'm very excited to talk to you tonight. Sir, uh, to welcome. Hear, to hear your story. And uh, it goes back, I guess, to the mid uh, mid late 90s? Yes, sir. It does. Of course, you, you were probably a very young man back then, but we're not young men anymore. <laughs> <laughs> The man's willing, but the body tells you different. <laughs> right. right. But my, my dad was telling me a story about how uh, he's gotten so old that when he sees stuff that he knows he needs to pick up off the floor, okay. it's still a decision. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good right. chance he's just going to let it be. Not, not I pick understand it up. that. I understand that. <laughs> yes, yeah. but um, uh, I'm glad to be here. Um, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we right. had breakfast the other day. You got a chance to meet Daniel, so uh, I think we're ready to go. Yes, sir. Yeah. I, I know you now as Sergeant Major, and I will call you by nothing else. <laughs> oh, wow. And Sergeant Major uh, Holcomb probably will refer to me as sir the entire time. I don't think I've right. ever heard him call me Paul, which means he is just slightly more professional than Command Sergeant Major Mike Stockhouse because <laughs> Mike kept going back and forth between yeah. Paul and sir. <laughs> it's all good. A little bit more disciplined. So, uh, sorry, Major, you are from southern part of the state. Right, south side of Virginia, basically a um, little town in the Charlotte Courthouse, Charlotte County. Um, it's a rural community, rural county. Um, it's kind of funny, though, because the town itself, if you blink your eyes, you go through it, it wouldn't even know you were in there. It's that mm. small. But if you look at the county itself, it it's pretty big. It um, touches Mecklenburg, um, Pennsylvania County. I mean, it's spread pretty much in South Side Virginia. It's a pretty large county. But the town itself is like a one light it's kind like of a, like a teardrop. It, mm. Right. When you grew up, there was no stoplight, no nothing like that, right? Still isn't. I mean, it, oh, it's a it's a no stoplight town. No stoplight. You can drive from one end of it to the other, and you won't see a stoplight nowhere. What's the most uh, notable landmark? Probably the courthouse. You would recognize that they just built a, a multi-million dollar one. It, in, I mean, oh. it's it's huge. Um, but the old courthouse, it dates back. It's like a historical landmark. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I bet. Uh, how is how big is uh, Charlotte Courthouse in terms of population? Are we talking about a few hundred people. Base. Yes. Yes. So back then and now. And now. It's, wow. It, nothing's really changed. It's rural. A lot of farming. That's it. Um, tobacco, corn, um, farms, cattle, you know, that was basically the, the staple, um, for that community when I was growing up. And the only thing that he had other than that was a textile mill 
That was in Keysville, Virginia, which is about nine miles from Charlotte Courthouse. Uh, that that did textile. Hmm. Um, Virginia was Virginia Craft. It was called okay. the mill was it, but then that went out of business. Um, I guess a little bit after I went into into college, right hmm. after school. What did your parents do when you were a kid? My wife, she, my my mother was a housewife, and she did. Um, Various jobs for for other people, you know, keeping up their house and everything. And my dad, he was basically um, a laborer, but he also drove school bus for the county. And he drove that for I don't know how many years. I mean, you know, so those those was his jobs and hers. He was grinding and she was grinding. Mm. That's pretty much. Making ends meet. Right. And and how many siblings do you have? Four. Four besides of me. And which one are you out of the mix? I'm the third. You're right in the middle. Yes. I you're am. the middle of the middle. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> you're, sur- you're surrounded by, by both sides Got a, times two. I have an older brother and older sister, and then I'm the third into my baby brother, Ryan. He's under me. And he was he was a surprise. I think nobody really did. <laughs> But I was glad it came along. If he listens to this, is he going to know it was, it was he was a surprise? <laughs> yeah, he already does. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, the basic part about it is, you know, I was glad that he did come along, even though he was a surprise because I got so tired of being called a baby of the family, mm. right? So now he has that distinction. I moved out of that slot. Is he close to, in age to you? We're about seven, eight years apart. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. He's the def- definitely the baby. Yes, he is. <laughs> I yeah. love it. So uh, how did you sp- – Daniel loves this question. I ask this question. Everybody I know I ask this question to because it matters right. to me. Daniel's tired of it. But Own it, baby. I, but, but, Carl, you, you and I don't have to care. Right. Uh, when you were 10, 11, 12 years old, how did you spend your time? When you had free time, what were you doing? I really didn't have much free time because when I came – when I got out of school, I already had a set – thing of chores I had to get that done uh. and then there's homework in the bed and in the weekends you know you were out there you know cutting grass helping my grandfather he would um he worked um basically um cutting grass at um cemeteries and stuff right um it was a church in in um Keysville and Steel there um that he cut grass for us so my time was spent with that you know in, so you were just working seven days a week pretty much yes mm. sir yes I was Man, wow! Because you needed to, right, right. And like I say, if if I did have some downtime, it was other kids in the neighborhood surrounding us that you know we would get together and we do the baseball thing with the dirt fields and all like that. We play you know baseball and and throw a football or whatever like that to run some of the energy off. But other than that, we were we were working most of the time. And you were working for money, or you were working because that's what your parents told you you were doing. My first check was with my grandfather. I helped him at the cemetery, okay. and I would get like a monthly staple from him. You know, he would keep the time that we worked and everything, so I would get get money from that. But otherwise, you know, it was just I had chores, and that was it. I did it. Were you uh, more of a jock in high school? You more of a uh, academic kid? I was. It was pretty much an even split. Um, I was pretty smart in in school. Um, in fact, I finished school a year earlier than what I... What? Mm-hmm. I graduated from high school in, um, a year early. And as far as the sports and all, yeah, I was football. I ran track a little bit. 
Um, didn't mess with baseball that much, but football, track, and basketball were my three sports. What positions you play in football? I was a linebacker, middle linebacker. I, w- I wouldn't want to mess with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was a, I was a middle linebacker, middle in the guard. That was my that's my position. So when you were playing middle linebacker, were you just trying to take the other guy's head off? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I, I was. I was. Uh, it's hard to picture. Uh, because you're such a nice guy. He's a very nice guy, yeah. but uh, you put a helmet on and you're, you're 16, 17 years old. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's a funny story. Um, when I, I, was in, I was playing football and I got a full, full um, scholarship to Ferrum University. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. You were a baller. Yeah, I was. I was. You and I have never talked about this. No, we haven't. Oh, what, wow. What okay. university was it? What's that? Ferrum. Ferrum, F E R R U M. I had a, I had a full full ride scholarship in my senior year, homecoming game. As luck would have it, we were playing against my wife's my current wife's team, Appomattox, mm. and um, they were like the number one team in the district. And we was just, I mean, we was the lower the low. I mean, we was people just ran over us like nobody it, expected much out of you. No, but for some reason that night. We were on. I mean, I guess it was just we were just motivated because we said, "Well, we're gonna beat this number one team," and they pride themselves on nobody had ever tackled their quarterback or got to their quarterback. But that night, I was all over. Him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It's hard to get to the quarterback from the middle linebacker spot. It, it is. You got but, a lot of people to go through. But it, it was funny that the, the center, because I would line right up over top of him. And you had those arm guards. Oh, yeah. And so what he would do, I was I would looking at it, and the first time we come off the ball, I come up with, with my arm. Because right. that was legal back in the day. Not, it, not anymore. You can't no, do that anymore. Right, right. And, and so after that, he, would, he was anticipating <laughs> me hitting him. He would shut his eyes, right? <laughs> and I just threw him out the way, and I'd get to the quarterback. So I did that about four straight times. Oh, man. And the quarterback got up, and he, I mean, he was mad. He was angry. So they, the coach called timeout, and he went over to the sideline. They sent the play in especially for me. <laughs> and that's how my knee got screwed up. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah, because you've had a problem Wait, with that they, knee for a long right. time. Yeah. They targeted you? They did. They did. Oh, get, I, I get, played in games where guys were targeted. To get yeah. me out of the game, and they did. So they injured you to get you out of the game, and, and that hurt your knee. Right, and it also stopped my scholarship to firm. That's ridiculous. Right. Over high school football. That's right. Crazy. It is. Yep. I, I mean, how many high school football games are played every Friday night in this country? Exactly. Uh, I mean, thousands. Mm. And, and that stuff's going on in games, right? And it, and it was going on back when you were playing. It was going on when I was playing, right. and uh, I, it still baffles my mind that there are adult men, ages mm-hmm. twenty five to sixty five, yeah, right. that are saying, "Hey, you teenager, go go mess up that other teenager. Let's, let's stop that kid from going to college, right? Yeah. So we can win this game. Exactly. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. What, what does it look like when they make a play that targets somebody? Do they just? Is it a defensive play, an offensive play? It could be anything, but what they did with me, they, it was a, it was, um, it was an in and around sweep, okay. And the, and the, and the back came around, the fullback come around, and I saw him when he came around. And so what I did, I was sliding down in line because what is all was also illegal. Then what they call about the, you grab the person in oh, the yeah, back, horse collar, horse collar, yeah. 
that was illegal back there too. So you could do that. You could do that. So when he came around the corner, what they would do, they would have the guards on offense, what they call trap. And as I was sliding down the offensive line, and, and you know, they basically it was like a free play. They let me go. And, and you I, knew something. That and was and, and so I, I thought about it, but it was too late when I thought about it. I said, this is too easy. And just as I reached to grab the guy coming around the end, I looked in the corner of my eye and I saw the two guards and one of them, he was airborne and drove his helmet into yep. the side of my leg. Oh. And it went click. And so I, I, I fell on the ground and I got back up and I fell back down. And then I, it felt like somebody took a heart iron and stuck it through my leg and then I looked down and my kneecap was like sitting on the inside that's what he did the the crown of the helmet was intended to take your kneecap and move it to the side so that the coach on that team was like hey take your helmet do a superman dive and try to hit his knee exactly that's what they did and that took me out of the game that's terrible all right and so that was the end of your football it was it was man Right. You're still a little mad about it, aren't you? <laughs> I am. I am. You should be. <laughs> right. You should be. Right. That's crazy. Because, mm. I, you know, I think about, you know, where probably where I could have been. We if, may not be sitting here. Exactly. You might be doing uh, famous podcasts. <laughs> right. Who does? Yeah, well, thankfully, it sounds like you still had a pretty active career uh, with the military, despite despite right. your knee injury. Um, but, but when did uh, Virginia State University get onto your radar? Um, right after um, high school, I attended um, a community college, um, John Edwards Community College okay. in Keysville. Yep. For two years, got my um, associate's degree there. Mm-hmm. And um, so once I got that, I said, well, I'm going to try to continue my education. So that when I saw, I had buddies of mine who went with me to um, Keysville, to John Daniel Community College, they actually got me interested into Virginia State because their family had gone in. So that's how I got involved with that. So I, once I left the community college, I went straight into Virginia State. But I only like did two years at Virginia State. At the time, I got my bachelor's degree because a lot of my credits transferred over. So I did the two years there. Um, cool. And w- once that happened... Um, then I basically was looking for something to do as far as work because, like I said, I, I've always been a person who who wanted to do more. And I said, tech being a working on a textile mill because my, my basic jobs, you're talking about my, my history of work. I was working at a sawmill that my father's cousin owned from like 7.30 in the morning till like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I would leave there go home, shower, and then go to work at this textile mill from from like about 5 o'clock till 12 midnight, go home, sleep, and get up get and do, back, it, all and do it all over again. And that got old very quick. Oh, I bet. Right, right. But so, How old were you when you were doing that? Um, I had just come out of high school. Um, okay, yeah, so this was between high school, high school college. and college. Yes. That's a, that's a, lot, a lot of work yeah. every day, man. Right. But I was motivated because... I wanted to get a get a car, and my father, you know, he said, "Well," and he always distilled us in me. He said, "You know, well, I'm not gonna get you no car. If you want one, you're gonna work for same it." Same conversation my dad had with me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, in the same thing, you know, I'm I'm outdoors, but I love hunting, 
And the same thing, my first gun, I, I was looking for to get it at Christmas. <laughs> you, and, your dad had different ideas. Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> and I come downstairs that morning, and I looked under the tree, and I was so disappointed. And so after about an hour or so, he came and said, you're looking for that, that shotgun, weren't you? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, I could have got it for you. He said, but I'm, I didn't want to do that. He said, what you're going to do, you're going to go to work with your grandfather, cutting grass this summer at the cemetery. You're going to save your money up and say at the end of the summer, what you don't have saved up, I will put with it and we'll go and get you the shotgun. Sounds like a good deal. And he did. And I still had a shotgun a day. Nice. And it looks like it just came off the shelf. And, and, and the point of that is clearly you had to earn it. And, and because you earned it, you had, took care of it. Like and that's were, exactly yeah. his Maybe. exact words to me. He said, he said, if I had given you this, he said, you wouldn't have thought nothing of it. He said, you wouldn't have took care of it. He said, but you worked for this and you made, your, made it happen with your own money. So Yeah, and you if you hadn't earned it, you wouldn't have that shotgun. Nope. Yeah, yeah, you no, wouldn't know where it is today. Exactly. But he also, he also didn't leave you hanging. If you hadn't saved up enough, he still came through exactly. after you'd put the work in and said, okay, right, right. I'll, I'll pay whatever's left. Right. So that's, that's good uh, parenting, I'd say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he ended up producing a, a strong uh, contributing citizen. Mm-hmm. Here. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair statement. Were you the first, was your generation the first to go to college, or were you the first in your generation to go? My sister, she went to community college ahead of me, um, but I was the first to graduate to community college and go further. Right. So I got got my master's degree too. So, yes, you do. Right, and that that happened when I got in the guard, though. That they helped me get that. Oh yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. army and the guard in particular has right. uh, has money for educational right. stuff. I, I I talked about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I know you probably talked a lot more about it than I have. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was it's definitely the, a way to retain people. It sure. was. Yeah. Was the master's also at Virginia State? No, that was at Averitt University. Okay. Mm-hmm. I feel like we were talking about Averitt just not long ago. Mm-hmm. Was it because that's where you got your master's? Or yeah, that's I don't know. My, you, you mean did we talk about it at breakfast? Or did we talk about it like separately? I don't. Yeah. I sorry. Don't, I don't know. Dan, Daniel's tired. He he just <laughs> he's been doing a lot of driving back and forth to Tennessee, uh, and he and his girlfriend, unfortunately, her uh, her great, great aunt passed away, uh, so he's driving back to Tennessee uh, wow. tomorrow. Yeah, her dad is from Chattanooga. I um, see. And his Mar- his whole family's out there. Wow. Yeah, he, he's a Marine. That's um, actually met her mom in Japan at the mm. U at the consulate, the U.S. consulate. Wow. She was a, a uh, I don't know what exactly her job was, but she was a young Japanese. Gotcha. Lady and and they started dating, and uh, yeah. Are you afraid cool. to ask her what she did back then? No, I, I feel like I've been told before, and if, this is where we give you a break. Sorry, man. <laughs> if, if, if if my girlfriend's listening to this, or if Eugenia's listening to this, she'll probably be like angry that I can't remember. But uh, yeah, I want to say diplomat, but I don't think it was that high level. I think it was she could have supported. Yeah, diplomatic work. Yeah, but yeah. So I see. We're we're headed back out to to Nashville. Um, no, sorry, Tennessee. I was just in Nashville for my brother's wedding, and then now we're headed back to Chattanooga. Yes, that's that's a haul. That is definitely a haul. It is it's brutal. Thankfully, we're going to have more help with the driving that's good. this time around. That's good. It's going to be all four of us. But but yeah. So let's give it. Well, tell us a little bit about what uh, Virginia State University was like when you went. Well, I was I was like basically a adult learner, so. I would go um, to, to class on campus, and then they had like off 
campus classes I would go to, but they had basically the same curriculum that the college had had itself. So the, the two years that I spent there, um, it was a mixture of on class, on, on campus classes and off campus classes, mm-hmm. um, satellite classes or whatever like that. But um, the atmosphere was great. I mean, as far as, you know, the the sports and everything like that. I didn't play sports at Virginia State. Because your knee got wrecked in high school. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So most most thing you know I was doing was like the academics. Um kept kept a pretty high um GPA um at Virginia State. It was in the upper threes. Um got through that, got my um bachelor's degree and then it was like a break. Went into the guard. Hmm. And then um, Colonel, um, what's that? That had the um, schools tall. I can't ever think of his name. Bolton. Yeah, Bolton. Colonel yeah. Bolton. He did that forever. Yeah. Yeah. Colonel Bolton. When I was in IG's office, came and asked me. He said, "What's?" He said, "Sergeant Holcomb." He said, "What you ever think about getting your master's degree?" And I told him, "No, I never thought about it." So he kept hounding me and hounding me. So, really? And that's how I got to go through Averitt. Um, kept a, a, a GPA of 4.0 the whole time. I don't, nice. even, I don't even know how you do that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't was, know how anybody gets four up. What was your area? Why, why were they wanting you to get a master's degree? And what did you study? Um, well, at Virginia State, I was criminal justice. Because that in between all of this... Um, I actually work for the Department of Corrections as well. Oh. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I worked for the Department of Corrections for about 17 years. And and this was in between college and me going into the Army. So what I did, um, I worked um, 17 years for the, um, for the Department of Corrections, started at... Um, um, Power Ten Correctional Center, they have the complex they had there and there, um, Deep Meadows they call it, place that I started and then I left there and went to Nardaway Correctional Center when they built that and opened that up and then left there and went to the training academy in Waynesboro. You were a correctional officer? I started as a correctional officer and worked my way up to a sergeant and I left from Nardaway Correctional Center as a sergeant and went to Waynesboro when they had the training academy Correctional Training Academy in Waynesboro. I went there and worked there for seven years and made the rank of captain there. At the and then after six years, I wanted to get back into the field to as an assistant warden to get into the warden administrative part of it, and could never get out of that. So that's when they got the opportunity to come back into the military, come into the military. Mm. Um, so correctional. Wait, wait, hold on a second. So, so I get the timeline straight. You're in college. You you graduate. You're in your early twenties. Right. You're doing seventeen years correctional. Right. Which puts you into your mid to late thirties. Right. But you you were a traditional M day soldier for a long time. I was. So we'll come back to the, to the guard thing. So okay. I had forgotten you were in corrections. Right. You have got to have some amazing stories from your time in corrections. So, if you don't mind, if you could share one or two of those stories, because I guarantee you, they're, they're uh, they'll, they'll. I'm guessing you'll tell us something unbelievable. I'm telling you know, when they tell you that that's a different world, it is. It's just like when you walk in that place and those doors shut behind you. It's it's a whole different world. So, 
And what you what you have to realize and you don't really realize until you get out of it is that you actually take up a lot of the characteristics of those inmates in there. It's a subtle change in your personality. Um, you stay serious about everything. You know, you never laugh. You never smile. I mean, I mean, and but you don't see it. But the people around you see it. Oh, you know, yeah. you're definitely serious about everything. And um, I, you know, I was told that when I left out and went to the training academy up in Waynesboro, um, a good buddy of mine, he was a state police officer in Virginia, um, JJ Bunch. Mm. He said, "Call." He said, "Lighten up, man." He said, <laughs> "He said, he said." You gotta gotta get over. Say lighten up. Say you're not in there anymore, right? But stories. You t- um, couple of things. Um, one was I was just a green officer, just come off of um. Well, I hadn't really gone to training, and they sent me out on a road gang. Mm. Um, and these inmates they were cutting this ditch line, and this um captain came down. Um, captain Fleming came down. He was what. Um, doing his rounds, checking the field gangs, and I remember he came up to me because the supervisor had the white shirts and all, and they back then they had like the gold bars and gold. Mm-hmm. So, and they, I mean that impressed me, and I said, "Wow!" I mean, he came up, he said, "He said, Officer Holcomb, he said, how you doing today?" I said, "Fine, sir." He said, "Let me tell you something." He said, "You're a little too close to these guys." With their weapon rights, but I mean, it scared me to death, right? I bet. So anyway, I got through that, and then one night, the 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 people that were in the um in my unit, I had like um, C unit. The way it was set up, you had a concrete main building where you had like the control room where you sit in, and then they it was just starting out, so they had like trailers. 12-man trailers connected to each side, like three 12-man trailers right. connected to this concrete building. And that's where the inmates stayed. And I remember this inmate came in from the slaughterhouse because Powhatan Correctional Center had a slaughterhouse. They actually were self-sustaining. They they did the potatoes. So, so the prisoners were working in the slaughterhouse. Exactly. And you, you it's amazing that process. You would see a live cow come in they'd shoot it <laughs> so by, by the way I, I i'll tell i think we may have talked about this at breakfast but i, I have to bring this up since we're talking about a slaughterhouse he's a vegan right daniel's yeah. a vegan, so okay i'm not yeah but don't don't stop no, I mean, no i don't right. want him to stop i'm not trying to get him to stop yeah right. keep no i just want i wanted that out there right, right. but the, the cow would come in, you know, you they they'd slaughter him, you know, and you see yep. a full grown cow and at the end of that process when they, from them skinning it to, to gutting it to doing everything else, come out in a package like this right here, your packages, you know, that's how that slaughterhouse worked. Yeah. And you had inmates in there that was, you know, doing the skinning and those knives that they use, I mean it was super were sharp. Super mm-hmm. sharp. And you can, if you can imagine five to six inmates in there with knives like they're doing this and you're like the only officer. That's why you're deathly serious all the time. Exactly. And so fast forward to the night that I'm talking about, I'm sitting there in the housing unit as a supervisor running this housing unit, C unit, and I don't know what made me pay attention, but I looked up as this guy coming from the slaughterhouse and he had a, a, 
a manila envelope, like those legal envelopes. And he walked past the control room. And I, like I said, I don't know what made me look at it. But I looked at the envelope and I seen about this much of the tip of one of those knives mm. that cut through the back of the envelope. And when I got up and I called him, he took off and ran all the way back in the back of the unit. So now, me not thinking, I'm just thinking about getting that knife from him. I'm running back there with to catch him. And next thing I know, I tackle this guy and me and him is down on the floor wrestling over this envelope we got this knife in it and I'm in the middle of one of those trailers mm. with 12 with 11 other inmates and then you got 12 inmates in the other so you got 24 inmates there plus the 11 inmates plus the dude you're wrestling with the dude yeah. I'm wrestling with right and I'm down on the floor with him wrestling never thinking about you know this is crazy, you know. You could uh, you could get killed right here. You, you're outnumbered, and there's a knife in play all the way around. Out, you know. So anyway, we down the floor, and, and I finally wrestled him down and got the knife from him and everything. And he got up and he was saying, "Well, he said, you see what he did to me." He said, "Um." I need witnesses because I'm on the file of writ of habeas corpus on him. I'm going to get his job. A jailhouse lawyer. Exactly. <laughs> and all the inmates looked at him and said, I didn't see nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so none of them filed anything, didn't didn't witness for this guy, nothing. Because they liked you? or They, they did. did. Yeah. They did. I was, I was strict with him, but I was fair with him. And I found out if you did that, you didn't have anything to worry about and didn't have to give them anything other than treat them Treat them like human beings yeah. and, and be fair with them. Yeah. And it's amazing how that works. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And they even tell them, say, well, if Holcomb has to lock you up, you deserve to be locked up, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. They they would come to my defense all the time. That's great. Right. Was that common for them to have an appreciation for, for a correctional officer, or was it mostly like inmates versus the officers? Some officers caught hell in there, believe it or not, because every little thing they would charge them because you had like you had a court system inside the institution too. They call it um, like a, a committee where they could bring them before uh, institutional court, mm. and so you all they already got charges from the outside that got them there. So now they inside the institution, they do something, and you write them up. That adds time they put them in lockup or whatever like that. So nickel and diamond leading to more time is it, it, not exact, the way to go if you're a correctional officer. Right, exactly. And you know, I was a firm believer in this, you know, okay, if you did something serious, yeah, I'm going to write you up. But if it was something that was petty, what I would do, I would use that to my advantage because they hated for you to have anything over them to where they felt like they owed you. And I would never write them up, but I would remind them of it. And so they said, oh, man, you know, it is so they got to appreciate that. And that's why they would say, well, you know, you treated us fair. You treated us like human beings. And they had 24, 7, 365 days out of the year to figure out how to beat you, how to beat the system and everything else. And they knew the law. They knew the regulations in that institution better than you did. But, um. If you treated them fair, you know, they didn't mind. You know, they would they would support you. It's a good thing you had that approach because that in that example where you're there with 36 inmates wrestling with one of them. Right. I mean, they, they would have had one of those guys would have had no problem picking up that knife and exactly to you. And then the other incident I'll tell you about, um, we had just 
opened up Nardaway Correctional Center. And it, the heat like it was for the last couple of days, 90-some degrees. And these inmates, they had brought people from Brunswick who had a ride. Brunswick had a ride, and they had brought them and dumped them. Mm-hmm. Oh, not away because we was a fresh institution to open up, and knowing that that's what happens when you open a new institution. Right. Up, the other institutions that that have the the people that they don't want, they send them to the new institution, get them off their hand. So all the troublemakers come to the same spot, pretty much. So I'm sitting there in the breezeway of my building, a building which was the the lockup section. That's what I ran, um, isolation section, mm-hmm. and so. I'm looking out on the boulevard and I'm seeing all these inmates congregate with these long trench coats on. I said, 90 degrees, and these guys walking out here with these trench coats. I said, something's getting ready to tick off. And they was getting ready to riot that day mm. at the institution. And I was thinking, I said, these people, they got shanks and everything I mean, under them they coats. They got all kinds of stuff going oh, on. Oh, yeah. And so. I left the breezeway and went over to the watch office and I told the watch command, I said, I don't know. I said, but it's something that's getting ready to happen out here on this yard. I said, I don't like what I'm seeing. And so he said, well, what do you think, Sergeant Holcomb? And I said, well, the yard's got to close here in the next 20 minutes or so. I said, so we got to go out here and close the yard. And so I said, well, I'm going out here and close it. And, um, my cousin had just come to work there, and I told him, I said, come on and come with me. So the watch commander stopped me. He said, Sergeant Hogan said, you know if you go out there, you may not make it back in here. And I said, well, I knew that when I started this job. Right. And so, hear me? My cousin come out there, and I said, look, just stay by my side. Don't say anything. Just walk with me. I said, if they say something to you, you don't answer them. We're just going to walk. So I walked through all these inmates, we they brushing up against you, talking to you under the breath and everything else, right? Mm. And I looked down at the at the far end of the um boulevard and I saw this inmate named Leroy Mason. And um he w- he had came f- with me from Deep Metals and I had known him for ages. And he I mean this guy, I mean he was humongous. He was a power lifter. Yeah. And so I told Leroy, I said, I so told my, my cousin, I said, just come with me. So when I saw Leroy, I said, hey, Leroy, can I talk to you for a minute? And he stopped because he was lifting weights. And he stopped. He said, yeah, Holcomb. He said, what can I do, man? And I said, look, I said, if you got anybody out here in the yard that you care anything about, I said, I'm going to blow the whistle here in about 10 minutes. I said, I want you to get them and take them inside. I said, because if anybody's left out here after I blow this whistle, I said, they're going to jail. They're going to, you know, get locked up. And so he said, he said, oh, okay, no problem. And there was another guy about half the size of Leroy out there stood up and he cursed at me. Mm. And so I said, who you think you are? And um, Leroy looked at him and said, didn't you hear what Holcomb said? <laughs> the guy hooked those weights down. And next thing I know in about 10 minutes time, when I blew that whistle, the whole yard was clear. Oh, man. Nice. Not a, didn't have a single problem. The yard was clear. And so I guess the watch command and the assistant warden at the time, they couldn't believe it, you know, how two people, myself and my cousin, could go out there and clear their yard of 400 and some inmates 
that was looking to tear this institution up mm. didn't have a problem. And what were they going to gain by tearing the institution up? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So you, your cousin, and Leroy. Pretty much yeah. cleared the yard. I, I like to make friends with the big guys. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's incredible. Right. Were you ever part of a riot? Were you ever in the yes. middle of one? Yes, sir, I was. <laughs> Funny you should ask that because I was telling you about the training, right? I hadn't even been to training. Power 10 Correctional Center had a riot, and they were like right down the street from where we were, and they threw a 36-inch baton in my hand, threw me on a bus. Mm. Next thing I know, no training at all. I'm standing in the middle of the hallway at Power 10 Correctional Center. State police got dogs and everything going up in there. No training at all. Doesn't make any sense. No, no like martial arts training or wrestling or anything? If you didn't know what you're doing, go for what you know. That was about it. <laughs> martial arts training was not something anybody considered back in the day, right? No, yeah. but that was it, you know, because I had no formal training in correction, nothing about that baton and nothing. It was just, you know, uh, if anything go down, you, you was going to go for what you knew, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Yeah. Scary. It was. But you ended up, you're still here. You're still with Yes, us. thank the Lord for yeah, that. My goodness. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the stuff I'm really excited about because I, I know some of these stories. Yeah. Uh, so you were how old when you joined the Army National Guard? I was 22, 23 years old. All right, so you, you became a uh, traditional soldier, yes. M-Day. Nobody knows what that means unless you're what in is the Guard. Yeah. I don't even does the what does the M stand for? I don't even know. We've been saying it so long, I don't even know what it stands for. It's one, right. it's one of those deals. But what it really means is uh, if you're a private, you're doing one week in a month. You're doing 15 days in the summer. Mm. As you get some rank, you might be doing some more time, might be going to some more school and right. kind of thing. But it, it's basically uh, what what some people would refer to as weekend warriors, which right. always uh, bothered me because yeah. we were doing a lot more than just uh, exactly. weekend mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but anyway, so you were 22, 23, and you were M-Day for quite some time. I was. So when I met you, you were already AGR. Yes, yes. Which and, you, and I thought you were a lot, I'll come back to that, I thought you were a lot younger <laughs> than you actually were. Right, right. I mean, you were a lot older than I thought you were. Mm-hmm. I, I guessed you were in your early 30s, and you mm-hmm. were not in your early 30s. No, sir. Oh, man. AGR stands for Active Guard and Reserve. Right. So it's basically the uh, Title 32 in the U.S. Code. Right. Uh, it's, that means you're full-time at that point? Yeah, he's full time. So uh, after your correctional officer career, I was still I was still um, traditional. The the end days M day soldier. I was still traditional up until eighty six eighty seven, um, and that's when the division changed over to light infantry. One army. Right. 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 And um, what happened was I went through basic training for um, combat service support unit um, that was in Chase City that was attached to um, unit the 183rd in Farmville. All right, we're going to have fun here, Daniel. When he says stuff you don't understand, just go ahead and ask him, but we're not going through all the ranks. All right. I've got the ranks pretty well down, I think, at this point. (laughs) Wait, wait, you said combat service support? Yeah, tell us about that. Okay. (laughs) Combat service support basically is like beans and bullets. Um, we, we weren't really the fighters, but we had fighting capability. Um, actually, when I came in, um, they were they still had the Jeeps that you hear us talking about all the time. Like on MASH. Exactly. Oh, nice. Right. And um, 
What is it? They had the um... sergeant major is 110 years old. Is what he's <laughs> right. The, the um, I'm trying to think of the name. They actually had the guns on those jeeps at the time. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. The unit I went to in Chase City. I'm trying to think what it, it wasn't dusters because the air defense artillery had, had the dusters. They weren't sixties um, either, though. Were no. They? Well, we had the sixty machine gun. Well, that. That was the infantry um, unit that was in Farmville yep. that we were attached to. They had the 60 machine guns that mounted on the back of the Jeep. They're part of the 183rd. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. And so we were like, they are beans of bullet support. But that unit that I was in, they actually um, recoilless rifles. That's yep. what it was, yep. Yep. the recoilless rifles. That's what I started with, and then they phased those out. And um, that unit became a tow unit, mm. an anti-tank unit. Yeah. And so we, I stayed with T- them. T-O-W. Right. Not T-O-E or T-W-L. Okay. Right. Tactically, oh, I used to remember what it stands for. But anyway, right. It, it take tanks out. Okay. Right, right. right. So anyway, um, I stayed with them, I guess, about a year, year and a half. And I went through basic training with them. When I was there, because that's, that's the unit I left to go to basic training on, and um, I got back and I was I was full of it, right? I I was ready to do some high speed stuff, yeah. And I started dying on the van, van, because I said I said no, nah, I said I can't stay here. And the way luck had it, you know, is when they did the division changeover, mm-hmm. and um, they were looking for people to volunteer to go through the light leaders course. Yep, they still teach it. Right, right, yeah. right. And so they came down to the unit that day and asked and said, who in here would like to go through light leaders course? And I raised my hand. So I left out of there and um, went and went through like an eight-month training thing. Mm-hmm. Um, weekends, eight-month weekends or whatever, you know, getting certified as a light leader. And then the two-week summer um, camp or two weeks AT period in August, the hottest time of the year. And what they did, they divided the Ranger bat up in at Benning, the third bat. They split them in half and sent half of the Ranger battalion up here and left the other half at Benning. And they took people out of Virginia and sent them down to Benning for them. To, and the ones that were left here in Virginia, that bunch of Rangers came here to Virginia and they trained us. So for those, oh, so you went through light leader being trained by Rangers. Yes, I and did. From the regiment, we were the first. We were the first course, we first group. Oh wow! To go through this was eighty five, eighty six. Yes, yes, okay. exactly. Okay, exactly. And so, <laughs> you look like you have a question. Dan. Well, okay, so you had you basically had Rangers and some non Rangers, and the Rangers were teaching you light leadership, which is a leadership course for light infantry, small unit tactics, right. light infantry, right. right. Okay. It, it you basically call it RIP Ranger Indoctrination Program. That's basically we was, was going off the same uh, um, mode of instruction, method of instruction that they actually trained the Ranger School students down at Benning or whatever like that. They yep. took us through basically the same phases and everything, but instead of going through like eight straight weeks or whatever of the school and going through mountain phase, um, three phases, three phases. They took us through them, but they were like on weekends, and then it culminated into the two-week exercise mm. where 
you would you were sleep deprived because one time once you finish one mission they get right back on the horn and give you another one. Oh. So for for those those two weeks or whatever camp that's what you were doing. Kept going, kept going. And at the end of it, you graduated with the doing a um, assault on Turtle, Turtle Island. Uh huh. Yeah. And what Turtle Island was, it's a place at AP Hill called Turtle Island. It was a little island sitting right in the middle of a swamp. And all around it was just nothing but water. And this thing, this island sit right in the middle of, of the swamp. And you had leeches and everything else in there. And you had to go across through this, the swamp to do an uh, assault on um on Terrell Island. Wow. And it's not for the faint of heart. And you're no. tired. Exactly. Yeah. And like you're supposed to I'm guessing not get caught while you're doing it. Well or? you had you had a um ranger instructor right there in your hip pocket and they would come up to you and they would quiz you like they they pull out the map and say, Well Sergeant Hogan said, where are you at right now? So you had to know where you were and um then he'll actually say, well, how you know this is where you're at? And you had to do terrain association. You would tell him we're right there at Turtle Island. This is where we are. And Turtle Island is right here on the map. So he said, okay, I'll go for that. And then they would have you in different leadership positions from like the platoon leader to the platoon sergeant to squad leader. And they would rotate you They'd through. They would rotate the positions. Right, right. So you had to, they would give you the mission and you had to actually do an operations order, brief that operations order, plan the mission. And then what normally would happen is once you if you were in a leadership position and you got the mission, they would take you up to you actually doing operations order, planning the mission or whatever like that. Then they said, you I'm killing you off. And they would pick somebody else up and say, OK, you you're, take, the now. you're the leader now. And so. The whole rotation, I started, they put me in a leadership position, and they wouldn't kill me off. <laughs> they wouldn't? <laughs> they would not. They made me the platoon leader and kept me in a position. I had to do a do a uh, assault on a, a, um, on an objective, and they, from the time I planned it, the day the op order, briefed the op order, we'd get, get everything set up and all. They kept me in that position all the way through the end, all the way back to to the um to the area, rear area. You were tired. I was. Why do you think they did that? Well, the the range instructor, when he he um stopped at night, he would call everybody back to the back of the building and he had their grade score their scorecards back there. And um he called me, he said, Sergeant Holcomb said, come back here a minute, say, I need to talk to you. And so he called me back there, Ranger Brown. No, we'll forget him. And he said, you were looking for me to kill you off, weren't you? And I laughed. I said, yes, sir. No, well, he said, I know you were. He said, he said, but no, he said, I just want to see how much you could take, how far you could go with it. He said, but you did a hell of a job. Nice. Right. Nice. Right. right. So that made me feel good. And so once, once I got through that, um, I was still traditional at the time, and then uh, we were doing a boat mission down on one of the lakes. And um, Captain Nelson, the one I was telling you all about the other day, yep. he was former Marine. He was Amphib, Recon, Ranger, Scuba. 
He has so much. This guy has so much. His physiology was you could walk up to him at 4 o'clock in the morning and say, I need you to just keep running until midnight. That was 20 not, hours later, and he's like, all right. That was nothing for him. Nothing for him nice. at all. And he was twice our age and could put you in the dirt in a day of the week. You know, but oh, I, you know, I remember this. You're right. telling me about this yeah. guy. I love that. He's, yeah. he's the guy that would run just slightly in front of you. You try to pass him, you it, can't get by him. Can't get by him, no matter how hard he tried. Yeah. And he knew it, too, you know, but he would, he would say, tell, tell me all the time, I said, don't you get out here and try to kill me, Hoko. And no, no, very well, I couldn't do it, right? You're right, you're right. <laughs> But, but you know that's you know that's how he was. But he would motivate you like that. You know what I mean? And the knowledge he had though was it was amazing. You know the amount of knowledge he had, and what really really made me um, see you know how smart and how he was. He he would have the Amphib Recon guys come up. We would train with them. He knew most of the seals. They would come up. They would put us through training with them, and I I got. The 12 years I stayed with the Light Leaders course at AP Hill, I got to do, I had did do more training with different uh, parts of the service than I would have ever got if I had stayed in that service combat service support unit. Mm-hmm. And so, so you went through the school, yes, and then you just stayed there as an instructor. Well, this is what happened. Once I graduated the course, I was still traditional at the time. And Colonel Johnson, he was Special Forces. Um, he made general in Maryland. Yeah, I remember Johnson. Right. Yeah, yeah. He actually, at the end of the course... Should have made it in Virginia. Yes, I think, exactly. I think there was a little uh, turmoil about that. Yeah. Right, right. But anyway, he came to me and he said, Sergeant Hook, he said, I heard you did an outstanding job. He said, how would you like to come and be one of my instructors here? And I said, yes, sir, I would. And so he told me, he said, he said, okay. So a couple of months passed by, and I'm still going to Chase City for my drills. And so the, um, they they turned around, and they, I went back up to AP Hill for something. And he saw me. He said, well, Sergeant Hogan, I thought you said you wanted to come and be an instructor here for me. And I said, yes, sir. He said, sir, what's going on? I said, sir, I don't know. I said, I talked to my command and I told him, you know, that I wanted to come and all. He said, oh, I see what's happening. Now, mind you, this is on a Sunday afternoon at AP Hill. Wasn't anybody in state headquarters at all. Oh, they they left by uh, 1400, bro. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I don't know who Colonel General Johnson did, but he went in his office he made one phone call, and the time it took me to drive from AP Hill to my home in Mechanicsville, which is about a half an hour, they had my orders cut, and I was assigned as an instructor light leaders. That normally takes uh, two or two or three months. Right. So that's how I got out of my unit in Chase City. Once I left there, I never went back. Mm-hmm. Um, they cut the orders and everything, and I got it. Got assigned to AP Hill as an instructor for light leaders course. All right, and, so go ahead. Sorry. Right, and that, that's where I was for the twelve years I was there. That was a long time. So you saw a lot of people come and go. Yes, uh, I did. There's well, what? What are some of the names and, and guys you remember? I, I remember a lot of those guys, but I don't know as many of them as you do. Are you talking instructor wise? Yeah, instructor wise. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had Mike Finnegan. Um, you had Washington. He was an engineer. You mm-hmm. may remember him, black guy. Um, that 
Um, uh, he he was he was engineer. You had Ralph Deer. You had Greer. Mm-hmm. Um, who else you had? Horton. Um, yep. Myself, Ricky Kaiser. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know you know. You yeah. got to help me get Kaiser on this podcast. Right. Right. Um, you, you notice he didn't say sure. I'll no problem because he knows Kaiser on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he. Kaiser, yeah. Kaiser was the ops sergeant major for our deployment. Right. He was the command sergeant major. And, and, right. Mm-hmm. But he and I, I mean, we were just like this. We met. He was a he was an E-5 coming off of active duty. And um, I had just made my sixth traditionally at um, AP Hill. And so he was out on a gun range that night. We was doing weapons qualification because what they would do, they would we'd run courses. It was like 15 days straight. Um, a bus would come in with a with a battalion, or a bus come in with a group of soldiers, NCOs, and we would start them on day one, and we would run them for 15 days straight. Mm. Graduate them. By the time we graduate them, salute them, whatever, we had a day or two to refit, and another bus would drive in, and we would do that so for cycle in and cycle out, run them through light leaders course. And mm. one of the things we did, besides going through the rights of passage or the uh, range indoctrination program, the same thing that they that the rangers put us through, one of the things they had to do was qualify with weapons, all these weapons on the range. And it would run sometimes at night. We did night fires and everything else. And I had a lieutenant come in. And and when, when he did those leadership schools, and the ranger school does the same thing, they strip you of your rank. So you can be a lieutenant, you can be a captain, and you can be a private one, but when you step off the bus or step there, you don't have any you're rank. All, you're all the same. You're nice. all the same. So that's how we ran it. And this lieutenant, I don't know what happened to him, but Sergeant Kaiser went to him on the range because once you fired a weapon, he had to pick up the brass. And I guess the lieutenant thought that he was too high to pick up brass so he, I, I want to be clear here I was not this lieutenant <laughs> <laughs> so so he um gave Sergeant Kaiser a bunch of stuff and so I heard it I wish I'd seen that I wish I'd been there but but Sergeant Kaiser he would just he had just came in so he didn't really know that you know the what did he get, get away way with right that. so anyway I heard it I turned around and I saw it and I just stepped over there and I told lieutenant I said Sir, I say you don't have any rank here. I say you're just like the rest of these soldiers. You need to get down here and get this brass up like he told you. So he looks at me like, who are you to tell me? And so, but he went on and did it. So the very next morning, I rolled in, and then Colonel Johnson was sitting in the Quonset hut that morning with his hands on the table like that, with his shirt pulled over his head, sleeping. Yeah. And I cracked the door, and he looks up like this. He said, "He said, oh, that's just you, Hoka. And he went back then like this. So about five minutes, I hadn't gotten in there five minutes, the same lieutenant bust through the door. Going to complain. Going to complain to him Ooh. about me. Ooh. And, I mean, never addressed him. Never reported to him or nothing. He just bust through the door. He didn't follow protocol at all. Right. He just bust through the door and started ripping into me and telling Colonel Johnson what I had done to him. You're there in the room? I'm standing there. I'm Actually, I'm sitting now right here at this table. 
And so General Johnson looks up at like this. He said, he said, and who are you? <laughs> and so Lieutenant told him, I'm Lieutenant Sir. He said, okay, Lieutenant. He said, this is what I need you to do. He said, I need you to go back out that door, get yourself together, and you're going to come back in here. You're going to report to me like mm-hmm. you're supposed to. He said, and once you do that, then we'll talk. Lieutenant came back in, stopped, saluted him, told, you know, reported to him. And General Johnson said, well, said okay, so what did, what's the problem? And so he said, well, this sergeant right here, da 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 He told him, he said, stop. He said, let me tell you something, Lieutenant. He said, that's my sergeant. If he told you to do it, you do what he tell you to do. He said, and furthermore, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had no idea what he was walking into. No, and then he said, furthermore, get out of here. He said, and if I ever see you again coming to me like this, he said, you'll be on the first thing leaving up out of here. You won't even have to worry about graduating the course. Mm. Right. He's the worst kind of leader. Right. Worst kind of leader. Right. Mm. Yeah. Wait, what? The lieutenant is the, the lieutenant. worst? Oh, okay. Right. No, not Johnson. Right. I, I, I vaguely knew Colonel Johnson, right. uh, retired General Johnson, uh, he I, he had a very good reputation. He did. You seem to be really good at getting people to trust you <laughs> and count on you, you know? Right. And have, have, have them be on your side. Right. It's, a useful, it's a useful skill. Right. Very useful skill. So some of the other names that I knew there were uh, Stockhausen, of course, mm-hmm. uh, Sergeant Major Heron. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, Virgil Gray was there for a bit. Exactly. Um, In fact, he's the one that got me back to the engineers. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Peck was Peck there? Yes, he was. Dwight Peck. Yeah. Yes, exactly. If I thought hard enough, I could probably name some little guys. But <laughs> but you guys did very very serious training. We did. You enjoyed what you were doing. Right. The camaraderie. My it impression was, was it was through, than you it was imagine. through the roof, um, and we got basically we got to to train the division when it trained when it switched over to light leaders um, infantry. We trained, all, we were in charge of doing all the, the specialized schools, scout platoon course, sniper course. We, we actually did, did the MOIs, the methods of instruction, wrote the training, did the repel master school. We did the uh, rites of passage. It was, it was a blank slate, and y'all got to make, make up awesome right. training. Right, and it, and exactly. It, was it still a lot of rangers, or was it more? Um, we had very few rangers. We may have had two or three rangers, qualified people in there. Um, at the time, and it was just us. We had gotten the training, but you had a mixture of active duty people and traditional soldiers coming in, and they teamed us up. We had teams, so and all of the teams specialized in something. So you had an engineer's team that specialized mm-hmm. in engineer training. You had an infantry team that specialized in operations orders and, and actually tactics part. And you know it was it was fantastic, and you did that for like the twelve months there, and then during the winter time when we weren't actually training the course, we got trained because we had a chance to ourselves to go out to schools and get certified as, as in um, air assault, um, pathfinder, all those courses. We got to go and and um. Go through it, mm, but for this course that you taught, you mu- you had pretty much all control over how to do everything and how to teach these. Yes, uh, but we had basically it, we had the the lesson plans and everything from the range of battalion. So 
that's who that's the methods of instruction that we actually followed doing these courses from mm-hmm. them. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, I uh, think was your first AGR job in the engineer battalion, or did you get AGR before that? Um, no, the first believe it or not, the first AGR job I got was a readiness NCO job at um, in Franklin. For air defense artillery. Oh, wow. Right. So you left ITD, Infantry Training Detachment, and went to, went, to an ADA unit. Right. I, I forgot we had an ADA unit. Right. I try to forget it, too. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you want to forget it? <laughs> he's judicious in what he's going to talk about. He's not going to talk about everything. <laughs> uh, let's just say that that wasn't my cup of tea. The only reason... The only reason I went there was to get my promotion to E7 mm. because it was it was a struggle being an AGR soldier or going on AGR program. It was a struggle to um, to get promoted. Um, and so coming from the ITD infantry training detachment, I, um, I had made E7 on the traditional side and I actually did become AGR while I was there. Because I came off a of traditional status to AGR for the um, infantry training detachment, but I had to give up a rocker. Mm-hmm. Cause, I, yeah, that's right. Because yeah. the only positions they had, active guard, was E6 positions. So I had to give up a rocker. I had gotten promoted to Sergeant First Class, E7. So I had to go back to E6 to come AGR. Mm. And so AGRs only have a certain number of slots. Um, and it is divided up in ranks. So it, the higher you go on the pyramid as AGR, the slots get smaller and smaller. Right. And you're competing against other AGRs. So by them, dissol- they dissolved the infantry chain detachment finally. And it was a lot of people who really didn't trust us because they said, these guys are wild, they're crazy. I, know, I loved all you guys. Right. I loved you. Guys. <laughs> you know, but they didn't realize they had a diamond in the rough because we were the ones who basically train knew anybody, training. Every because that's all you did in peacetime. Exactly, exactly. So we knew training. You know, we didn't know anything else. We knew training. Mm-hmm. And so you had a few commanders then that actually stood stood up and said, Well, I'm gonna take a chance on these guys. And once they got us out in the field, as what they call readiness NCOs, E7 jobs, they thought this is a wow, what were we missing all mm. along? And that's how, you know, we got our toe in it into into the system and we went from there. Yeah, I, I had uh, Stockhausen as my readiness NCO when I was a company commander. And right. Best thing that ever happened to me. Right. Right. Don't don't tell Stockhausen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's not listening. Um, no, he, he'll listen to this one. Right. Oh, cool. Okay. One. Yeah. So, uh, you were ADA, and then you came to engineer. Because I want to get to the part where you and I met. Right, and that's I had been with the engineers about a year and a half, and the way the system was set up, you had they had it so that you had to stay in your unit at least two years before you would be eligible to transfer out and go anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So I had been there about a year and a half, maybe a year and seven months, and I was thinking to myself, I said. I got to get out of here because this is not my cup of tea. In Franklin, not, not Franklin. And this right. isn't traditional anymore. It's not weekends. No, this you're, is, you're there full time. Yes. I he, mean, he's getting the unit ready to go to war. Right. That's this what, is, that's what this is me. So anyway, 
when I first got to Franklin in that ADA unit, I mean, they had um, IG complaints and everything, I mean, out of the butt. I mean, people were, fa- the, the, um, IG and all stayed at Franklin. And when I got there, basically I turned the unit around. It was, you know, it was, it was amazing to see the trans- transformation in that unit. And um, Captain Pendleton, who was my commander at the time, and Sergeant Major Johnson was my first sergeant mm. at the time. Cheyenne was my first sergeant. Mm-hmm. And he'll tell you today, he said, he said, I don't know what I'd have did without him. He said, I don't know what this guy, he said, because when he came and he applied for this job, he said, I was thinking to myself, ain't no in the world this guy's going to do anything to help me. And they were always prepared when they came in the captain and, and, Sar- and um, first sergeant Johnson. They were always prepared because I would brief them during the week on what was going on, the day-to-day stuff, and then I would have everything laid out for them when they got there. Well, you were the commander of the first sergeant during the week. Right, right. So anyway, then that's how I ran it. And he had basically just sit back. The unit ran itself after that, and he loved it. So anyway, I stayed there for a year. It was about seven months, I think. And then I saw that... Um, Sergeant Didlake, Master Sergeant Didlake, mm-hmm. yep. that he was Alpha Units Readiness NCO. Oh, I was the XO when Didlake was the Readiness NCO. Yeah. And I'm not I think it was um, whoever was the operations sergeant at the time. I don't know if it was Sergeant Major Webb or who. who it, may been, it may have been Sergeant Major Heron or something. Whoever was it the, op- been Heron. Was the been operations Heron. sergeant had made Sergeant Major. So that opened up that. Um, AGR slide is the op sergeant for Deadlake. For Deadlake, right? So he moved out of Alpha Unit to that, and that left that Redness NCO job. Up. So I saw it come over that thing, and so I put my application in, and um, I got on the phone and I called Colonel Gray, and I and I said, "Hey, Vir- sir. Virgil, right?" I called him and I said, "Hey, sir, I say, um, I see you got um op uh." Look, the Redness NCO job opened it now. He said, yeah, he said, he said, you interested in it? And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, I'll tell you what, he said, I've got several other people that's interested in it, too. I got Pecker, he called him Pecker. Right? <laughs> he said, um, um, his name was Peck. Peck. They called him Pecker. Right. He said, I got him. I got Dalton. He said, and now I hear you, you interested in it. He said, he said, well, I can't lose. He said, either one of you guys he said, he said, I'll be, be on the money. So I said, yes, sir. He said, well, get your packet in. He said, and, and we'll see how it falls out. So I'm, I'm at home. I drove back from Franklin that, that, that Sunday. And I'm at home, and the phone rings. And it was Colonel Gray. He said, what are you doing, Sergeant Hoker? I said, sir, I'm just getting in the house. Good. He said, get your uniform on and come up here to Fredericksburg. So I said, okay, sir. So I rolls into Fredericksburg, and I can't think of who else was on the board, but they interviewed me that mm. Sunday afternoon. And um, then I, that's how I got the job. I got the job. And I stayed there as a residence NCO, did that for, I guess, about two, two three years. That, or was, that was a fun I – lo- I love that battalion. I was there for 12 years. When you right. got there, you were Alpha Company. I'm pretty sure Sergeant Lilly was Bravo Company. Was it Lilly? Yes, it was. I think, I think Tim, it was Tim Lilly. Right, but he, no, it wasn't Tim. Tim had left. It was, oh, um, Tim left. Tim, Tim was gone. It was Bones. 
um, Bonner. Bonner, Ed Bonner. Bonner, right. I mean, Bonner was in Charlie Company. He was my first radio in Charlie right, Company. Right. And Stockhausen was in Charlie Company, and Don Willis was in headquarters. In headquarters, right. I mean, what a team. I'm telling you, we, I mean, what we made it happen. I mean, it was great. I loved all you guys. <laughs> but we got along great. I mean, the, the camaraderie and, you know, helping each other out and everything. So when one person was weak in something, you had Don there, you know, he'd come in, you know, and and I mean, we basically trained each other. Y'all just wanted of... everything to work. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I guess sometimes we were on word center because we didn't have the equipment a lot of times, but we would find things to substitute and we made it work. I mm-hmm. mean, the training and all was fantastic. And um so I did that and and then I turned around and I goes to lunch one day and I come back in and I see a a message over my computer saying from the state sergeant major who was then Dallas Mills mm-hmm. said, um, Sergeant Holcomb, give me a call when you get back. And I'm thinking to myself, do I really want to make this call or not? And I'm sitting there saying, because if the state sergeant major is getting ready to call you for something, or you want you to call. It's probably bad. It's going to be bad. So I sit there, I know for at least 10, maybe 15 minutes debating on whether I want to call him or not. So I finally got up enough courage and I made the call. And um, he said, how you doing, Sergeant Holcomb? And I said, fine, Sergeant Major, what can I do for you? He said, look, he said, um, I got a position coming open here in the state headquarters for the IG's job. He said, um, Master Sergeant Glasscock is getting ready to move back out to the battalion. He said, and we're trying to figure out who we could get to come in and take his place. He said, and your name came across the desk. And um, I'm just calling to see if you'd be interested in it. And I, my exact words to him was this. I said, well, is there a promotion in this, Sergeant Major? I said, because if it's not, I'm satisfied right here what I'm doing, where I'm at. We were happy campers there. Oh, yeah. Okay. And he said, he said, no. He said, you come in, you go to the school, you pass the school. He said, and once, once you do that, he said, you'll get promoted. So I said, okay. And so I went there. And it didn't work that way, though. I went there, and I went through the school, passed the school of flying colors, came back, was in a job a year, two years, and I kept on the promotion system because they had it where you had to come to the top of the list of your MOS. And once you came to the top of the list of your MOS, then you could go ahead and get promoted. Well, I had done that several times. I'd come to the top of the list, and um, they would always bring somebody in and put them on top of me. It was not a uh, scientific process. If I no, no, it wasn't. So anyway, I got really disheartened about it because the job only was supposed to last for three years, but I went, they wound up extending me in that <laughs> job. It's internal affairs for the Army, essentially. Pretty You're much. You're not the most popular person in the world. No. And um, I had dealings with prior IGs um, because they would come in and do do inspections on your unit and stuff. And they basically called them the black hats. They'd come in and they would hammer you for any little thing. You know, I mean, they would write the unit up and everything and fail them on inspections and stuff for stupid stuff. And um, my, my thought was this. If I'm not here to help you, I'm not here to harm you. And so that was my whole thing. I would call the commanders, 
And I would tell him just like this. I would say, sir, this is what, what was brought to my attention. This is what I found. Now, this is my suggestion. You can follow it if you don't. I said, but if I were you, I would take this step, A, B, and C. And I said, but it's up to you. And that's how I would leave it. I would never tell them, you're going to do it. You're going to mm-hmm. do this or whatever like that. And so they really appreciated that part that I didn't just throw the whip out there, you know. and try. you could. You I could. could have, but I didn't. I, you know, my job, I thought, was to try to help you correct stuff more so than try to, you know, say, point the finger and say, I got you. Yeah. And um, after the four years, um, I got came back to the battalion. Yep. And once I got back to the battalion, I got the position as a first sergeant in Alpha Company. Mm-hmm. And then they had me doing the op sergeant's job, too. Yep, yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I was doing first sergeant, doing the weekend day or whatever like that, slash operations. And on the weekends, I actually was doing um, Alpha Company first sergeant's job. And um, Two very different jobs. Two very different jobs, right. So I had a training background to do the op stuff, and then I got to learn the redness side of it to do the day-to-day job as the redness job for the for the unit for the first sergeant exactly. So um, it was it was an adventure. So I stayed there after that. After I got back, and I was glad I got back in the field. Um, and that's when Sergeant Barney and me we switched positions. Ed came down to the IG's office, and I went went into the um, ops slash um, first sergeant's job for the unit and stayed there for a while. You, you got the better end of that deal. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I did. Yes, I well, did. Well, I, I know you had a lot of positions here, and uh, we, we're not going to take three hours because it, it would take a lot right. of uh, that amount of time to go through all the positions you had. Let's skip forward to your deployment. Okay. And you were the brigade command sergeant major. It was a really big job. Right. I was on that deployment with you. Right. Yes, sir. Uh, so tell us about that deployment. What are your thoughts on that deployment? Okay. Well, it was interesting how I actually got to be the brigade sergeant major because I was not supposed to go on that, on that deployment. I wasn't either. Right. I was sitting in the unit in Fredericksburg, and I, I was looking at the watch, and it was almost time for me to leave. And the phone rang, and it was a soldier who had his pay screwed up. And I was looking at it and I said, all right, I've got to get on the horn and try to get this guy taken care of because that was my whole thing in life was to make sure I took care of these soldiers. So That's your, that's your job. You're right. failing if you're I'm, supposed, I'm supposed to be gone, but I'm sitting there and I'm I'm figuring this out. I'm trying to get, and I finally get it straight. And just as I hang the phone up and I'm getting ready to leave out, the phone rung again. I said, I ain't answering this phone. I'm gone. And so it kept ringing. It wouldn't stop. And I said, what in the world? This is before, I guess, voicemails. So I, I, I messed up, and I picked the phone up, and it was Colonel Coffin. Oh, <laughs> I, I got a similar phone call. <laughs> it was him. He said, how you doing, Sarho? And I said, I'm doing fine, sir. How you doing? He said, good. He said, he said what are you doing? I said, I'm getting ready to leave, sir. He said, you, have anybody talked to you today? And I said, no, sir. And he bust out laughing. He said, guess what? <laughs> I said, what's that, sir? He said, you go with me to Iraq. <laughs> You're like, I thought I was going to Mechanicsville. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So 
I had just enough time, maybe about a week, to clear out the battalion and pack up my stuff and go to Stanton as a brigade sergeant major. I had actually I had just made the battalion sergeant major because um, I was colonel. Coffin Sergeant Major when he was in Fredericksburg. Yeah, I was a three. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. I had just got promoted. I got promoted in 2005 to command Sergeant Battalion Command Sergeant Major for the engineers. And um, then I moved from there, like I said, on that phone call to the brigade. Um, brigade smaller than a battalion. No, brigade's uh, bigger. Bigger. Then we're not, we're not going to go through all the units tonight. <laughs> right. so, uh, so, I, hey, hold on a second. I forgot. We got to tell a story about that AT where you were the sergeant major with Coffin as the commander, <laughs> and then I was the three. Right, you, right. I think we can both tell the story. Right. I'll, I'll start by saying, uh, and Colonel Coffin will listen to this. So, Colonel Coffin, I still disagreed with your directive or order <laughs> to uh, make us sleep in cots in the field. I'd... I'd been a grown man for a long time and I'd never slept in a cot in the field and and because I think he he was an armor guy yes. I guess they they're used to sleeping in cots right but anyway he outranked me well well in his defense in his defense this is a good sergeant major for in, a commander. In, in his defense coming out to IG's office there had been a bunch of complaints from this from the soldiers about this really yeah and they were hammering units it, and this was coming down from up oh, high. Oh, he was getting. This wasn't his idea. No, he was getting pressure. No, because Colonel Coffin would. He he could care less. Right. But this was something that was coming down from above. See, I never knew that. Right. So that's what the deal was. That's why you saw those cots out there. It was quite. It was quite comfortable in those cots. It was. It was. Uh, <laughs> it beats laid on the ground. It did. It did. But um. That's in his defense, you know. That's what happened with he, that. He's, he's laughing. He'll laugh when he hears this. Right. Sure. Right. right. That, that, okay. That's good context. So anyway, I'm I'm doing my thing as the uh, the operator and the and the trainer for the uh, battalion, and I got it in my head that I wasn't going to do any personal hygiene, not not any real <laughs> personal hygiene. And and we're out in the field for basically the whole time, whole fifteen time. days. Yeah. This is uh, maybe day eleven or day twelve. I had stopped smelling myself 10 days earlier, but everybody else was still smelling me, I think. And uh, Colonel Coffin, I think, sent Sergeant Major Holcomb to, to grab me. And, and the way I remember it, Sergeant Major Holcomb just said, sir, sir come with me. <laughs> so I said, where are we going? He goes, I, I, you'll see when we get there. Very respectful. I said, come on, sir. It's almost like me. he's dealing with a six-year-old who refused to take a shower. So anyway, we we uh, where where did we end up? RTI, right? Yes, it it, it one of the um old very old, uh, right? I mean that that World shower room, it was something. That, I mean, you had crud all over it or whatever. Like I'm that. not sure I got any cleaner taking a shower I, there. I know, but anyway, we we were taking a shower, and when you wear the uniform, especially when you're in the field a lot, you, your sleeves are down. I mean, especially back then, right? And so I I'd, I'd never seen. Your forearms, I'd never seen, I'd probably seen your legs, but I didn't think Pay much of it. To. But it's just the two of us there together, right. taking a shower, and I, I see you've got these burns. These burn marks right. on your bicep. Right. Tell us how you, you got those burn marks. Well, like I say, you know, we were, when we was with the training, the infantry training attachment, we were the people who taught the division schools, the specialized schools. So mm-hmm. we was running one of those 15 day light leaders courses, yep. and at the same time, we were doing a scout platoon course and I had just come off a rotation early that morning because I had been out all night with the light leaders course and I came in and instead of me driving home that night that morning because I was bone tired I sit there in the Quonset hut and I was sitting back you know catching me a nap before I got on the road to go home and 
Sergeant Major Kaiser came in because he was doing his scout platoon course at the time. And um, he said, what are you doing? And I said, Rick, I said, I just got in, man. He said, he said, look, man, he said, he said, come on, come with me, come with me. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, we're doing escape and evasion. This is the last phase of the scout platoon course, I said, and we're setting up high positions for these guys, and they got to come through to see, and if we detect them, you know, then they'll fail the course or whatever like that, and say, come on, man, you got to help me, you got to do it. And he knows, you know, that love him to death, he knew I was not going to say no. Hmm. So I He never get, said no to you, you never said no exactly. to him. Exactly. Yeah. So I get up, and I say, all right, Rick, so here I go, put the Gillis suit on, and we take off. And so I'm out there, and I don't, like I said, whoever this kid was, he came through, and it was just like this last week or so, hundred and some degrees, whatever like that, and not a drop of water anywhere, and leaves and everything was bone dry. And this kid, he threw one of these smoke grenades, and it just had a luck of the draw where the grenade landed. It landed like right here where I was laying at, and... The way that they made the gillis suits at the time, you had burlap and you wove the burlap in through like a net and you, you sewed the net onto your uniform. And just so happens that the uniform that I had on was a flight suit. Mm. So the gillis suit was made basically like a one piece, the flight suit, and we wove the burlap and everything into it to make the gillis suit. And that helped. The whole lot because if I had had just a, a regular BDUs, I would have got burned. Yeah, ripped through there. It, it would yeah. it would have really hurt bad. But um, it was bad enough with that. But being that Nomax that that flight suit, it helped because it was flame retardant to a, to a lot of degree. But anyway, to make a long story short, the flame caught the leaves. The leaves caught the burlap. The burlap bearing down, and where the seams were on the on the uniform. We would put like shoe glue to keep it from when if you got the low crawl to keep the seams from splitting open. So that shoe glue would hold them together. And once that burlap, dried burlap, was just like a wick on the candle, it caught that that shoe glue, and I went up in flames like a Roman candle. And um, it burned my arm and my legs. Came out with like second, third degree burns, and I remember. Once I patted it, I, I fell on the ground and rolled and bat, patted myself, got got the flames out. And Rick ran over to me and said, hey, he said, hey. And he was looking at me. He knew I was burned really bad. He said, man, we got to get you out of here. And I was like about 200 meters inside the wood line. Mm. And I actually remember running out of the wood line with these burns. With third degree burns. With third degree burns. And sit down on the, sh on the side of the road where the old rappel tower at AP Hill used mm -hmm. to be right there at Cook Campsite. Yep. And Jim O'Farrell rolls in. And um, he was a ranger from um, 7th Ranger Battalion. He yeah. came in and um, he looked and he knew that I was burned pretty bad. And he said, he called the medic and said, medic, get over here. And the medic saw the burns on my arm and my, on my legs and stuff. And um, he, I mean, he was just freaking out. And so Jim grabbed his medical bag and then he grabbed like canteens of water. And I remember him wrapping my arm and everything in gauze. And he just kept soaking my arm and leg down with the water. Mm. And they called call it choppy in it for me. And they flew me from there to Washington Medical Center. And I stayed in the, in the hospital 
for these burns. I stayed in Washington Medical Center. They did all my graphs. The civilian hospital did, right. did all the graphs. And then they finally got me out and put me over into um, up in, in Maryland at the hospital there. Yeah. And um, I stayed there. And that's where they discharged me from the but from the day that that it happened to the day I discharged was a, exactly a month mm. month to the day. That's a long time to be in a hospital. It was, but that's how badly you were burned. Yes, it was. Because when they brought me in, the doctor looked at me and said, "Well, sorry to hope you said you're gonna be with us for a little while." And I said, "Yeah, I figured as much," and didn't feel anything because all the nerves were burned. But the only time that I ever really felt pain. They put me in the swirlpool bath with that tens benzine, mm-hmm. and what that is is like iodine. Mm. They put me in there. Salt in a wound, right? Yeah. And what they did, they had scrub brushes, steel steel wool scrub brushes, and they scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed. And she said, "Well, we got to get this dead skin off." And they had scrubbed till it bled, and that's when they knew that it was down to the to the good skin again. Before they could put the graphs on it. And you're not taking any pain medication. They didn't give you anything. Well, they started giving me, once I finished that, they started giving me this, what they call Dilaton. It's like a synthetic morphine. And I told them, I said, look, I said, I don't need that stuff because I do have a high pain tolerance. You got a higher pain tolerance than I do. Yeah. Right. They said synthetic morphine. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's fine. Right. Give me some of that and stuff. And they said, sorry, I hope say, you don't have to be who, you know, we know you good and everything, but say, you know, if you're in pain, you let us know. But I really was, and I, I do have a high pain tolerance. And so this nurse came in and um, she said, well, the doctor prescribed us, so we got to give it to you. And I said, I don't need it. And she put that stuff, I remember just as good, she put that stuff in this in the IV. And the minute it went in, I said, I know what a drug addict feels like because sweat beads started popping up on my forehead. And I said, I'm going to pass out. And I sit up on the side of the bed, head down, and I could hear them scrambling around like ants in the room. I said, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I, then I could feel myself coming back. And I looked at it and said, I told you I didn't need it. And so after that, they, they left me alone. But, I, you know, once, once that happened, I, um, I was giving classes to them on how to take care of me. <laughs> well, because you're a trainer. Right. That's what you did. Exactly. I, I was talking to my wife on the phone, giving them instructions. My wife said to me, she said, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, teaching class. <laughs> right. All right, sorry. So uh, back to the... the, the uh, oh, no. Well, before we go to this woman, they, they stopped making the ghillie suit. Right. That, I, way. that accident actually changed for the whole Army-wide, changed the way that they made ghillie suits. That, that accident did. As, so as some good came out of it. Some good. Right. Wow. Totally good. So Sorry, back to the deployment. Yes. What, what, tell us a couple of fond memories you have from the deployment. Um, it was, it was a real good, good deployment, um, for me. And it's one of the things that I can say I can check off the block because I had been wanting to go on a deployment and to get a chance to actually do it. Um, being HGR, I mean, it was, it was really good because most of the time HGRs didn't get to go. I remember when Desert Storm cooked off, I volunteered and they wouldn't let us go. And they're saying that, well, if you go, you ain't going to have a job when you get back. So that was the 
thing. Which doesn't make any sense. No. So anyway, I got a chance to go. But I guess one of the main things I remember was Sergeant Major Rogers when I was E E5 at Light Leaders. I heard him talking to one, another Vietnam vet one night in the Quonset, and he was talking about his um, experience as a scout in Vietnam in the Rangers. And um, he was talking about mortar attacks and rocket attacks and all. And he was saying, and, um, you know, how, how devastating it was and how he got blown up out of a tower on one of the fobs or whatever like that yep. when a rocket attack came in. And so I was, I got up out of bed because I said, this is, this is amazing. And I was stood up there side the bed listening to him. So he asked me, he said, Sergeant Holcomb, he said, well, let me ask you a question. He said, how deep do you dig a foxhole? So I gave him the textbook answer, you know, the three entrenching tools, wide, and all that stuff. And, I, and he laughed. He said, let me tell you something. He said, if a rocket attack or a mortar attack come in on top of your position, he said, like it, like they do, he said, ain't nothing going to be deep enough. He said, you're going to be digging with your fingers, hand, and everything else. He said, to try to get deep in the ground. And so guess what? We moved in that night, mm-hmm. right? And what would happen? What, about 27 of those bad boys roll came in on top of us when we was moving in that night? I, I got I got to come clean here. I was not with y'all. I was a week delayed. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. But, yeah, but that night we moved in. That, that was the welcoming. Uh, it was the welcoming. Yeah. yeah, that was our welcoming. And I thought to myself, you're not in Kansas anymore. This is the real <laughs> deal here, right? And, I mean, it, it, that, they were raining. Those rockets was coming in left and right. Bloom, bloom, bloom all over us. So for the first two or three months, it was like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they had what you call a C-RAM, you know, and that goes off supposed to be an early warning. <laughs> it wasn't. It didn't work. No. Um, <laughs> you, the Department of Defense spent a lot of money on that. And, and they didn't get was, their money's worth. No. No. They, the rockets landed and blew up before that thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> But you just wait ten seconds, you'll hear the C Ram after the explosion. Exactly. But it, it was it's amazing at, you know, you lived in what you call the choose, what they call them, um, container containerized housing units is what they call them. Mm-hmm. Um and they basically all they are are these um um which could you call it's them? fabricated Keep, metal, metal kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shape shape of a C. Right. And you and you that's what your living quarters for the for the time you're there. And so anyway, next next experience I had, rocket attack early one morning. You found you finally figured it out that you didn't want to be in there at six o'clock in the morning. You didn't want you wanted to be in a hard case structure at noontime to one o'clock. And from dinner time to about seven o'clock, you didn't want to be outside walking around because those basically were the three times that you was going to get rocketed or mortared those times. 90% of the time, it would fall on those windows. And then yeah. in between the 8 o'clock hour to the next morning, you know, you was it was anybody's guess. But um, the first few weeks or months that you're there, you know, you hear those C-Rams going off, and you you could hear these rockets coming, right? You you get up and you throw your vest on and everything because you kept everything right there by your bed, and you run out there and you get in these in these hard case shelters or whatever, you know, basic concrete bunkers or what they were. And, um, but after about a month to three months, you got, you're so in tuned to the sand of those things. You knew where they were coming. You knew 
if how far they were out, you would know. I mean, just so listening to the sound of them coming, you would know if they're gonna hit inside of your the fob or inside of the, the area you were at, or whether it's too far off. So you know, you laying in the bed and you hear, and then you hear the C round going off. You say, "Shoot this!" No, ain't no getting enough for this. You know, it's, it's it was a, multiple times a day, every day for a while. Right, right. So, but you you get you get, you know, it's a bad thing, but you do. You know, you 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 get that way, complacent, and you know, and it, and it's sad, but it's true. But then you have new people coming in for you know from embassies and everything like that. They're sharing your your living quarters, and they you can tell the newbies because when that thing go off, you can hear them over there scrambling, get the stuff together, running down. Yeah. I, I remember being in the chow hall, and there was a uh, a big dump truck right across the river because we were right on right. the Tigris, and it was full of explosives. Exactly. And, it, and I we'd been there I don't know three or four months at that mm-hmm. point, and we were used to rockets, but I wasn't. Yeah, none was, of us were used to that kind no. of thing going on. And when that explosion happened, I thought hell was raining down on us. Oh yeah. And so I. I put my tray down. I didn't spill stuff. I put it down calmly, but I got on my on my belly. I was laying down, and I I looked up, and there was a sergeant E five mm-hmm. who was in our unit, but he had deployed a couple other times. Right, he never moved an inch. He didn't react at all. Wow. I'm like, maybe you've deployed too many times because that right. should cause you to move. Yeah, I that I got down. I ain't tell nobody no tale. I got down underneath that tables too, and then yeah. Because it I'm not, actually, I'm not ashamed. It was it was across the river, and it actually shattered, spider web some of the, the, the glass. It shook, it shook the building. And in in the chow hall, and we found part of the reaxle, about this much of the reaxle. Remember mm-hmm. that came over into the into the area that we was at, across the Tigers River, across which is not a small river. river. Yeah, right. Wow. Call them V beds. I mean, this thing. I mean, it was packed full of explosives. Vehicle-borne improvised explosives. Right. Were, were they just trying to get as close as they could to detonate it? No, nah, they weren't trying to get to us. We right. weren't the target. There was something across the river right there. I don't remember exactly what it was. Right, mm-hmm. right. But uh, that 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 was the closest a V bed had gotten to us. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. But it scared me all the time because you know we had those trash trucks coming in and out all the time, <laughs> all the time. You know, and that's. Always stayed in the back of my mind, you know. I said, I don't like this. Yeah, don't all like it takes this. is one. Exactly. Yeah. Second time in your life you were being uh, deadly serious about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, it's amazing. I mean, and you said complacency, but I think it's also, it's amazing how well humans can adapt mm-hmm. to even hearing the different noises of the different mortars and rockets to know whether it was going to hit you or not. Right. Right. It's crazy. Cool. Well, uh, sorry, Major, we've been going an hour 40. We usually go about an hour 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'd be remiss, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, your perspectives on what's going on in this country as it relates to uh, to race. Yes, sir. Um, well, I, I tell you like this, I've been through a lot of it um, coming up from in Charlotte County, rural county, whatever like that. Mm-hmm. I was in the, in the era when they were um, integrating schools. Okay, so I got a taste of it there, but I, I have to admit that my parents and all they did a fantastic job. My dad and all they sort of like shielded us from a lot of the stuff, um, and a lot of the stuff I didn't understand. You know that he was going through and how he was he was reacting to, you know, the people around him. You know the race relationships or whatever that was in the county. You know, but um, 
I looked at that and I'm thinking to myself, well, why are you doing this? And then as I grow older, I understood, I begin to understand. And now that this happening now, I understand even more. But I'll say like this, um, we've come a long ways, but we've still got a long way to go. And as far as the idea behind it, um, I will say this, that their, their heart's in the right place as far as, you know, all we're looking for, all all they're looking for is to be treated fairly. Don't want to give you anything. And this is, I look at it from my point of view. I've never wanted anybody to give me anything. I worked for it. But if I work for it, I want, I earn it. I want to be respected for it. And if you get equality as far as, as race, you know, all it is but to me is just basically common decency and respect for one another. Whether regardless of what race you are, you respect each other unless you prove otherwise. And it's two facets to this. You have the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on. And again, you know, people are saying about about Floyd, he was a criminal and this, that, and other, you know. Well, what they don't realize is he may have been a criminal, but you have to look beyond that to a certain degree because this just didn't start with Floyd. This has been going on for for a long time. And the racist, we didn't turn the cheek, you know. They're killing up people, you know, whether police or whatever, you know. They were killing up people for no reason at all, you know. And it's just gotten to the point where they've gotten fed up because it's been happening and it was like no justice. It's been happening and no justice. But where it is right now, it's two facets to it. And I'm sad to see like all this rioting and all this looting and burning because that doesn't accomplish anything. If anything, it defeats the actual purpose for what's going on. Um, I don't agree with the violence. I don't agree with people um, tearing up your community and all like that because that's not that's not resolving anything. What needs to happen, though, like I said, is to be focused on what actually started this movement, um, whether it was Floyd's um, untimely death in the way that he got, he, he passed or, get, you know, died, to, you know, actually putting focus back on racist treating each other with respect and all like that. That's what the main deal is right there, you know, just to be just to be equal, yeah. just what 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 the um, Constitution, everything says, you yeah. know, equality, you know. Yep. No doubt. Uh, everybody just wants to be treated the same way. Same way. Yeah. Right. Treated fairly with respect. Exactly. And if you act like a knucklehead, you get treated like a knucklehead. Exactly. It doesn't matter what color you are. It, exactly. Yes, sir. Cool. Well, Sergeant Major, it's been great having you here. Uh, I really appreciate you coming here. I I, <laughs> I, I reached out and you said, no problem. Right. I appreciate uh, you having me. And that's been your attitude your entire life. Uh, Dan- Daniel uh, and I learned a few things tonight. I yeah. think you probably blew Daniel's mind uh, a few times. No, yeah, thanks for coming. And, no uh, problems. It's, it's been great talking to you. Same thanks, here. Thanks, Sergeant Major. I appreciate you all. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.